Osio Tahiji. Yeah. How are y'all? Uh, hello. Yeah, I want to, again, you know, first start off by introducing myself. My name is Naya Segway, or Peter Francis. I am Chickamauga Cherokee, or Aniwia, as we like to call ourselves. And as Nick said, I'm a member of the Medicine Society of the Doxy Gatio, which is a, uh, it's a traditional fire grounds located in Bates County, Missouri. And um, yeah, we've, um, we started the, the grounds, started back in, in uh, 2010. Um, being Chickamauga Cherokee means that my ancestors chose a side of resistance to, in the face of Euro-American expansion. Their resistance was multi-tropical, multi-ethnic, and it worked hard to prevent the signing away of our land and or assimilating by picking up white societal practices. We became a part of the Western Front in that fight, making Western Tennessee and Northern Georgia the line at first, ultimately picking up and moving into what became Missouri, Arkansas, and Texas early on. According to early documents, there has been a permanent Cherokee presence in Missouri going back to the late 1690s. For many years, Missouri had been considered a hunting grounds largely due to overhunting in the East. This presence, most historians unfortunately either leave out of Missouri history or choose to ignore. Instead, the focus has been in large part on the removal or what's been known as the Trail of Tears, which began in the 1830s as the main beginning for entering Missouri on the way to Indian Territory or Oklahoma. As a people, Cherokees did not originate in Missouri. Our old homelands consisted of North and South Carolina, Tennessee and Northern Georgia, and surrounding areas. But this area is our home. We have rooted ourselves here. And so as any indigenous person would say, we have always been here. I was asked to come and speak to you tonight on the issues of how Christian theology or religion compared to native oral tradition has affected the way in which people relate to the earth in the matters of war and peace. I want to first state that I enter into this conversation as an indigenous person and from that perspective, but I am just one person and I don't claim to speak for all indigenous people. You also need to know that I am not a Bible scholar or a Christian, even though I will be speaking about the impacts of a biblical origin story. So tonight I will share with you three origin stories. The first is a Chickamauga Cherokee story, Grandma Turtle. The second, Sky Woman, which comes from the Anishinaabe people through Robin Wall Kimmer, who is a Citizens Band Potomotomy from her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, many of you have heard that book or read it. Uh, the third story you will find in the book of Genesis, in the beginning chapters of any Bible, I will first relate that story and then later focus on a few key verses that I believe have had the most impact with these stories. I will then give my opinion as to the impacts that they have had on their peoples and others. 
Now, I will say this as a disclaimer, there is often an understanding among indigenous storytellers that we leave you alone with a story to come to your own understanding. How does the story speak to you? Oftentimes, native storytellers will say our ancient stories are about the here and now, more so than placing a date in history. The old ones say that the world was the tip of a mountain, Blue Mountain, to be specific, and all around was water, a vast ocean. So the people were fine with all of this, and we had what we needed, but there came a time when things became a little too crowded for our liking. So the people decided to talk to Creator about this to see what could be done to make more land. Well, the Creator said, there is nothing more than I would like to do than to do this for you, but you wouldn't appreciate it. So, if you could dive down, one of you could dive down to the bottom of the ocean and get a ball of mud, I'll see what I can do. So all the people decided to have a council to see who would go and get the mud. They talked for some time, but Grandma Turtle said, I will go and I will get the mud. All the people said, Grandma Turtle, you're too old. Who will go and get the mud? Duck, he quacked, said, I'll get the mud. People said, good, Duck, you go, you get the mud. So Duck swam out in the water and he chose a spot to dive. He dove and he popped back up. He dove and he popped back up. He dove and he popped back up. And he came back and he said, I can't do it. The people said, who will go? Who will get the mud? Otter said, I will go. I will get the mud. So the people said, Otter, good. You go get the mud. So Otter swam out. And he chose a place. And he dove. And he was gone for some time. But he came back. And he came back with a fish in his mouth. And the people were like, Otter, where's the mud? And Otter was like, mud? What mud? And the people were like, the mud to make more land. And Otter said, oh, well, he said, I, I went, I dove to get the mud, but then I saw this fish, and, well, here I am. <laughs> the people said, who will go? Who will get the mud? Grandma Turtle said, I will go. I will get the mud. Grandma Turtle, you're too old. You're too old. Who will go and get the mud? Beaver chimed in. He said he would go and get the mud. He, didn't, he said he didn't play around, and besides, he didn't like fish. <laughs> so he went off, and he dove, and he picked a spot. He's picked a spot to dive, and he took a deep breath, and he took another, and he took another, and another, and then he dove. And Beaver, you know, he was gone for quite some time, longer than Otter. And he came back up, he popped back up, and he, breathed, he was breathing hard, and he said, oh, it's deep, it's deep. I couldn't get the mud. People said, who will go? Who will get the mud? Grandma Turtle said, I will go, and I will get the mud. People said, Grandma Turtle, before they could finish, yeah. she said, I will go, and I will get the mud. 
Nobody else wanted to. So Grandma Turtle, she swam out. And she picked a spot. And she took a deep breath. And she took another, and another, and another. And she took three more. And then she dove, descended in the water. And she was gone for, for a long time. Longer than otter, longer than beaver. One day went by, two. People posted a watcher up on the top of the mountain to watch for her. Three days went by, four, five, six. She still wasn't back. Seven. They saw her. The watcher saw her. She's back. Grandma Turtle is back. So all the people were excited and out swam otter, and beaver, and duck to go get her, to escort her back. But when they got close to her, they noticed she wasn't moving. Grandma Turtle's head hung down low. Grandma Turtle was dead. So reverently, silently, they brought her back, brought her back to the shore. And all the people were crying for her, crying for Grandma Turtle. But someone noticed the back, her back paw was clutching some mud. So the people, they took this mud from her paw and they rolled it up and they handed it to Creator. And Creator took that ball and he threw it out. And the land spread out. And so the land, it was wet and muddy at first and nobody could go out on it. And so Grandpa Buzzard, he said, I could go out and I could fly and I could dry this out. And he, in the back in those days, he was much bigger than what he is today. So Grandpa Buzzard, they, all the people said, good, you're good, you go, you dry the mud. And so Grandpa Buzzard flew out. And every time his wings came down, a valley was formed. And every time his wings came back up, a mountain. And if the people didn't say something to Grandpa Buzzard, there'd be nothing but mountains and valleys. <laughs> so the story of Sky Woman. So in the beginning, the world below was all water. And the world above rested on the sky dome. One day a hole appeared in the sky dome, and those who lived in the world below saw that something falling through that hole. They looked closer to see and saw that it was a woman. Now when the hole formed, light came down through that hole and lit up the world below. So the woman falling was lit up. The ones who lived below were concerned that if they didn't do something to save this woman, she would fall into the water and die. So the geese flew to her rescue and they caught her on their backs. For the moment, everything was okay. But the woman was too heavy for them to support her for very long. They called a council to decide what to do, and it was Turtle who agreed to let the woman rest on his back. But they knew that she needed more land to live on. Otter, Loon, and Sturgeon all decided to dive down to the bottom of the water to retrieve some mud. All were unable to, but it was muskrat. 
who was able to get the mud, and in the process he gave his life. The woman took the mud from his paw and spread it over the shell of turtle, and they danced around making the land grow. Then the woman, she took from her left hand seeds and grass that she grabbed from the tree of life before she fell, and she planted these in the land that became Turtle Island. So now the third story. In the beginning there was a God who created the heavens and the earth. This God through six consecutive days began creating. First he started with light and then water. This God then created dry land and on that land created plants and trees. This God then created birds and animals and those who live in the water. The God then created humans, beginning first with a man whose name was Adam. And then from that man, the God created a woman who was nameless. Everything to this God was good. So after all this creating, the God decided to rest. Now this God decided to place the two humans into a garden that he created for them. In the middle of this garden, a tree grew, not like the other trees around it. The tree in the middle of the garden was called a tree of knowledge of good and evil. The God told the humans, you can eat the fruit of the other trees, but not this one. In the garden, the God gave the man Adam things to do, like naming birds and animals. But one day, the woman, after talking to a serpent, ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge in the middle of the garden, and she shared that fruit with Adam. After this, the God confronts the humans about what they had done, and in a rage, he curses the serpent, curses the woman, and curses the land, after which the nameless woman is named Eve and the two humans are thus banished from the garden. When we take a look at these first two stories, from the native perspective, the act of creating doesn't fall on the sole responsibility of one entity. That creating is a community responsibility. In the story of Grandma Turtle, the creator figure wanted the others to take part in the process. The creator simply suggested what was needed to create more land. And what was needed was mud from the bottom of the water or ocean. It was up to the people to decide who would carry this out. You see this too in the story of Sky Woman, an active part in the creative process, co-creators. When you have stories that focus on community cohesion, you create a society of people who see the importance of how hard it is to take on, but also to never take for granted what has been created. As native people, there's a saying that whatever you do in this world, you always think about seven generations out ahead of you. Another aspect that you see is the power of diversity that it takes all to complete a task. Even in the failure, there are lessons to learn. 
Within these two stories, there's the understanding of the circular aspects of life and death, that life and death are intertwined together and that they are not to be feared, that it takes the death of others to make life happen. These sto two stories speak, too, to the power of women as life givers and life creators. Within Native societies, you will find an understanding of the importance of balance that both men and women share in life and contribute, but there is an extra importance placed upon women for that deep connection that they have with the life-giving forces they share with the Earth Mother. As Native people, we place importance in connecting with the land, even or wherever we are and wherever we go. The story of Sky Woman touches on this fact that Sky Woman did not originate or come from the world below. As Robin Kimmer points out in her book, she comes from a different place. But even though she came from a different place, she was willing to connect herself with the land. Not only was she willing, she brought with her gifts from where she came from to remind her of her past, but to also create a future. She held in her hand the seeds of possibility. When you have an origin story that speaks to the importance of connecting with the land around you, wherever you're at, it reminds you to always treat the land with the utmost respect and to see the land as part of you. Now there are many ways that Native people connect to the land. The act of indigenous diverse agriculture is one. Growing a three sisters garden. Selu, corn. Tuya, beans and squashy, squash. But also other various varieties of vegetables. The respectful hunting of animals. And the gathering of herbs is an, and other plant life is another. Animal husbandry the raising of domestic and semi-domestic animals. Believe it or not, this goes way back for Native people. The testimony of Francisco de Chacora, who was a Chacora or, or a Catawba Indian, he speaks of this. He was kidnapped by Spanish slavers along with 70 others in 1521 off the coast of South Carolina. This is a portion of what was said about the native people by the Spanish upon revisiting South Carolina in the regions of Spanish named Chacoriana, Dejara, and Zapita. In all these regions they visited, the Spaniards noticed herds of deer similar to our herds of cattle. These deer bring forth and nourish their young in houses of the natives. During the daytime, they wander freely through the woods in search of their food and in the evening they come back to their little ones who have been cared for and allowing themselves to be shut up in the courtyards even and even to be milked when they have suckled their fawns. The only milk the natives know is that of the does from which they make cheese. They also keep a great variety of chickens, ducks, geese and other similar fowl. Now note it is possible that the chickens that they, the Spaniards were talking about were, in fact, turkeys. Other ways that we as Native people express our appreciation with the Earth Mother are ways of giving back. And these are ways such as jola and tobacco, 
cornmeal, flour, or pollen. We give through prayer and ceremony. The Haudenosaunee have a prayer of thanksgiving. This is a portion of that prayer. The Earth Mother, we are all thankful to our mother, the Earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us as she has from the beginning of time. To our mother, we send greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. As Native people, we have an understanding that our life here is only momentary and that there will be others who will come after us. It is important to remember that we must create a good existence for all. Now I want to talk about this third story that I shared. It is important to note that there are biblical historians such as Merlin Stone or Joseph Campbell who can give you a more complete account as to the origins of this story and how it was put together. The backstory, from what I understand is that at one time, several thousands of years ago, there were marauding men who came from the north out of the Caucasus Mountains into the Middle East and attacked the tribal peoples of the area. Kidnapping some of the women for the purpose of creating a male-centered religion and culture. Taking the ancient origin stories of the tribes around them and turning them on their heads. What I want to do with this is to relate how that origin story has had an effect on those who adopted this creation story as their own and how this has had an effect on the world and the relationship with the earth. In talking about this story now, I want to draw your attention to some key verses in the book of Genesis. In chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, Then God said, let us, make man, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this part of the story, you begin to see the foundations of a belief system in the idea of species supremacy. A belief that second to God, humans above all other forms of life on earth are superior. That superiority is driven by the notion that humans are the only ones made in the image of God. And so therefore, a given mandate to rule. This part of the story begins the process of thinking that whatever is done in the earth can't be wrong. It is what God wants us to do. We have direct orders. Now I want to direct your attention to chapter 2 in the account of Adam and Eve verses 19 through 22. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The act of naming, though it may seem harmless, is a display of power. This story wants you to understand that God is giving the man Adam power over the animals by naming them, and this plays into the understanding of the power dynamic. You also walk away, starting in verse 21, with the understanding that women are the byproduct of man. That in the species hierarchy, you have the human male at the top, and women are beneath. This is important because of the thought process of a hierarchy and domination, which comes into play further on in the story. Beginning in chapter 2, you are introduced to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, starting with verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In chapter 3, the woman talks to the serpent and eats of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, starting with verse, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the, that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this verse, set of verses, the story is planting a sense of fear. The knowledge outside of what God wants or what God tells you is something to avoid. You will die. The God of the story exerts his control over the humans by controlling what they know. After the woman shares the fruit with Adam, the God who created them flies into a rage. Verses 14 through 20. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food you will eat your food until you return to the ground. 
since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. So this story ends with the God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden, setting up a barrier. So the two were forced to wander about the land as cast-offs. The way that this God places curses is important in the understanding of the story. The first curse he places on the serpent, making the serpent beneath all livestock and all wild animals, that there would be harsh feelings, division, between serpents and humans. There's a lot that you can take away from this. Livestock are a type of animal that you can control in a pen or enclosure, and the serpent was hard to control. So therefore, it was cast down as that which would always have to fear for its life. But the serpent, in the story to many cultures around, represented acquired knowledge. And those who were telling the story knew and understood that. Around the area, people revered and worshipped serpents. And they used their aid as direct channels to the divine. The Greeks had a temple called of Asclepes, a temple dedicated to the science of medicine and healing. Serpents were an important part in that healing, and today you see that image, the rod of Asclepes, used in the medical field today. The woman Eve, this God places a curse of pain in the giving of life, but the story plants in those who are listening an insidious notion that Eve, a proxy for women, will have a desire to be with a man who will rule over her. This plays an important part in the creating a culture of male dominance and control. The fact that it was Adam who named her plays into that narrative as well. As you will remember, God gives Adam the job of naming the animals. With the man Adam, this God scolds him for eating the fruit, then curses the land and tells Adam that you will have to battle the land in order to eat or survive. The God in the story is setting up an attitude that the land or the earth doesn't love you. It wants to hurt you. Thistles and thorns. It is up to you, Adam, to subdue the land, battle with the land, conquer it in a way that you should conquer your wife, and then you will be the victor. This story is about control. The God in the story wanted to control the humans by placing them in a controlled environment, but he also wanted to begin the process of teaching the man, Adam, to exhibit that same control. This story is about the fear and control of knowledge, women, and the land. Once you have a foundational story that a God endorses this kind of behavior, your culture will carry on this thinking and how it relates to people within your group and outside that group, and how it relates to the land. The practice of monocultural agriculture Fencing off or controlling land, land ownership was common practice in Mesopotamia. What has been called 
the cradle of civilization. But it spread out from there. There is something else that comes out of this story like this. In that stories that center on species and gender superiority may feed and grow attitudes of religious, cultural, and ethnic superiority. In relating how these first three chapters of Genesis have had an effect on its spiritual descendants, I want to focus on North America, or what has become the United States, for reasons that it affected those of us who are here. It is my belief that those who came here with the story of Adam and Eve took the disconnect and the desire to subdue the land to a whole new level beyond what was done in Europe. When the first European Christians began to arrive in North America to stay permanently, there was a belief or a hope of native people that the new arrivals would become indigenous treat their new home with kindness and respect, enter into that already established intertribal relationship that has existed here for thousands of years. What came instead was a vicious cancer of carelessness that unfortunately still persists today. The attitude that came over on the ships long ago was an attitude of dominance and control. Anything that stood in the way of progress had to, had to be subdued or destroyed by whatever means. John Winthrop, who was a Puritan lawyer and the first governor of Massachusetts, you know, the one who believed that he was divinely ordained to build a city upon the hill, gave his voice or justification of the land takeover in 1629. The, the earth is the Lord's garden, and he hath given it to the sons of men to be tilled and improved. Why then should we stand striving here in places of habitation, many men spending as much labor and cost to recover and keep sometimes an acre or two of land, which would procure many acres of as good or better in any other place, and in the meantime, they suffer whole countries useful and convenient for the use of man to lay waste without inhabitant. But what warrant have we to take the land, which is and hath been so long time possessed by other sons of Adam? That which is common to all is proper to none. These savage people ramble over much land without title or property. There is more than enough for them and us. God hath consumed these nations in a miraculous plague, whereby a great part of their country is left void without inhabitants. We shall come in with good league of these nations. John Winthrop was well versed in the teachings of the first three chapters of Genesis. And as time progressed, the brutal displacement of native peoples from the land took on many forms. The biological form was just one, and it was profound and devastating. But without a scorched earth policy of violence following the biological, there would have been a recovery. But one of the most effective weapons in the arsenal for displacing native peoples 
has been through the means of colonization. The process of the transformation so that there is a resemblance to the colonizer. One avenue early on that was most effective was the introduction of European goods to native people in exchange for animal hides. What has come to be known as the fur trade. What happened as a result was the overhunting and often de depopulation of animals such as deer, beaver, and other fur animals, often at the hands, but not exclusive of native, pe of native people in exchange for metal pots, blankets, glass beads, guns, knives, and other goods. This weapon of greed planted into native society often led to the meltdown of tribal groups. Now I want to be clear to you that in no way Am I saying that everything was perfect in the Americas with Native people in our relationship with the Earth at all times in history before the arrival of Europeans? In fact, there were times in the past that our oral stories, such as the story of the origin of disease and medicine, speak to the fact that we humans lost our way, became overpopulated and destructive, but it was the animals that had to put us back in our place through the form of disease. But the plants took pity on us. But when Europeans came over, it was hard to combat the multi-pronged attack that ensued. Again, we began to lose our way. If it wasn't for our oral stories and the many prophets such as Iskagwa, Clear Sky, or Tenskwatawa, and others to pull us back, it would have been far worse. Continuous disease, war, debt, and forced assimilation of indigenous people began to take its toll to the point where native people began to relinquish land. In a private letter, Thomas Jefferson wrote to William Henry Harrison on the 27th of February, 1803. He wrote about the prospects of entrapping native people into a debt system for land. Here is a part of that letter. The decrease of game rendering their substance by hunting insufficient, we wish to draw them to agriculture, to spinning and weaving, the latter branches they take up with great readiness because they fall to the women who gain by quitting the labors of the field for those who are, or which are exercised within doors. When they withdraw themselves to the culture of a small piece of land, they will perceive how useless to them are their extensive forests and will be willing to pair them off from time to time in exchange for necessaries for their farms and families. To promote this disposition to exchange lands which they have to spare and we want for necessaries which we have to spare and, and they want we shall push our trading houses and be glad to see the good of influential individuals among them run in debt. Because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individual can pay, they become willing to lop them off by a cession of lands. At our trading houses too, we mean to sell so low as merely to repay our, us cost and charges so as neither to lessen or enlarge our capital. This is what private traders cannot do 
for they must gain. They will consequently retire from the competition, and we shall thus get clear of this pest without giving offense or umbrage to the Indians. In this way, our settlements will gradually circumscribe and approach the Indians, and they will in time either incorporate with us as citizens of the U.S. or remove beyond the Mississippi. After the forced takeover and theft piece by piece, European Americans along the way sought to transform North America in a way that pleased them. At first, in large part, white societies were largely agrarian. This type of agriculture that was en encouraged was large-scale farming, manipulating the land, growing few or one specific crop for the markets. This type of agriculture was fueled by the horrific exploitation of human beings, chattel slavery of black and brown people. The agrarian society over time gave way to big industry. The introduction of the mechanical motor that powered factories still exploited humans and the land. Little thought was given to the polluting of the air, land, lakes, and streams, places of sacred gathering for indigenous people such as Onondaga Lake in New York and many others. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This was taken to heart. Now, I don't want to leave you here tonight thinking that there is no hope. In fact, I see all sorts of glimmers of hope all around in ways that people are becoming more proactive in the fight against climate change and other social justice issues. A willingness to clean up the mess to, and I see this in a way that people get excited about community gardening, connecting with the ground and plants in a small scale and intimate way. I love the idea of no mome. I see it in the transitioning from finite caustic forms of energy to cleaner renewable forms. All this is great, but it is important to understand that words and stories matter, and they have and continue to shape attitudes to gay. Pew Research back in 2014 took a survey to see where the attitudes of religious people stood in regards to climate change. What they found is when asked if humans were responsible, 28% of white evangelical Christian Protestants said yes. That compares to 56% black Protestants and 77% Hispanic Catholics. Much of what Pew found in that survey with regards to attitudes tended to fall in line with ethnic and political identity. But what I see too in that research is that there are still those who refuse to accept the harm that ideas of subduing the earth have had and continue to have. Now there are those, and I've heard this said in the relationship humans should have with the earth and other living forms on earth. The idea that humans should be good stewards in the land. I've even heard native people use this term. And I want to address this notion because I believe people don't fully understand what that means. The word steward traces its origins to the Old English word styward, meaning ward of a pen for cattle or pigs, as in sty. This word still conjures up images of control and dominance, just in a kinder, gentler way. What I see as far as our relationship with the earth in the under, is in the understanding of being indigenous, growing and living naturally in a region or environment, 
and understanding that we as humans are a part of all that is around us, not above, but apart. And so that understanding or concept should be granted for all who are willing to do the work to connect to the land where they are at, regardless of how long your ancestors have lived in any particular area. To be clear, becoming indigenous does not mean cultural appropriation. Granted, you may look to others as examples, but you will have to find your own way. To be indigenous is in the action. It is what you are doing. Nobody gets a pass. Moving forward, you are responsible for your actions here on Earth. And whether you work to bring forth change or whether you stand in the way and allow the continuing violence, it's up to you. There are those today who think that the planet and her condition is beyond all hope and who are building phalus-shaped ships of exploration in the hopes of conquering other worlds. These people, I feel, are the spiritual and physical descendants of those who are still wandering the land, never connecting. Perhaps, maybe it's time to re-examine the Garden of Eden story. That the truth hidden in the story was a woman trying to build a connection to the earth by eating the fruit and sharing it with her partner. Well done. Y'all so are still awake. Yeah, yeah. So we, we are we are here at like 7:30, and we've got some other stuff to kind of roll through. But this is a lot to take in. So um, what we generally do is we like to try to have some time for dialogue. So I didn't know if folks, if we just wanted to spend just a couple moments to allow folks just to process and ask questions uh, of Naya at least uh, with some of the stuff maybe you're wrestling with. Understanding again that we 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 honor the perspective. Uh, and the challenge that he has brought here before us. Um, so the idea here is we're not looking to get into like a tit for tat about how we're gonna interpret that. We can do that later on. <laughs> um, uh, but, but it's important for us to examine our creation story and, and uh, the ways that it has been interpreted and the ways that it has been used for dominance. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate your word of hope uh, at the end of that night. So, uh, does anybody have any questions or, or reflections for Naya before we move on to the next thing? One, one quick one. Mm -hmm. You've given us three uh, creation stories. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing there are 1,500 others. <laughs> do, you, do you know how many, how many, almost every culture has a creation story? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and what do you know about how many there are and how different they are? Oh, well, you know, what I know as far as creation stories is, you know, is what I've heard, you know, and other people share what I've, I've read. Um, I mean, you know, from, from the perspective of origin stories as far as, like, if you were to go out and pull people out there and, and you ask them what origin story do you know, they're going to know that third story. They're going to have some idea, regardless of whether they call themselves Christian or not, they're going to know that Adam and Eve story. Um, and that story, you know, 
it, it has had the most profound effect on the world. And, and the world that we see today is a result of that story. Anybody else? It can be a question or a comment. Maya, can you kind of share um, the history? Can you share the history of Turtle Turtle Island? Is what North America was called, and like mm -hmm. who, how many tribes and people were there, and the ways in which economic system, agricultural system, ways in which people worked with one another prior to the Europeans. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, both these stories speak to the origins of, you know, the, the understanding of, of this place being Turtle Island. Um, you know, there are other stories that are out there, too, that speak to that, too. Other, you know, from other traditions, other, you know, tribal peoples have their own stories. Um, as far as, you know, the, the amount of tribes that were, you know, here in this land, you know, pre-invasion, pre you know, 500 plus, you know, and there's all these, you know, various branches and, and, and break-offs from the main tribal groups and such, you know, and, and that's the way, way it is today, too, you know, that there's all these little splinters from, you know, from main tribal groups. As far as intertribal relationship was concerned, um, a lot of that, you know, I know in the um, East, a lot of that, you know, fell along spiritual lines, that there was, you know, understandings of those who were like, um, those who followed, you know, a mound, Unegajiyu, the white otter, you know, tradition and or you know the birdman tradition followed that tradition of the fire the ancient red fire and then there were those you know the Suan tribes who followed their traditions and so there were you know there was an importance placed upon not blending that but respecting that and and one thing too you know that um, I can speak to, you know, just by, you know, I don't know if any of you know who Tayaki Alfred is. You know, he's an indigenous scholar from Canada, Six Nations guy. You know, he speaks to, you know, the um, peaceful coexistence with boundaries. That, that was, you know, pretty much standard when it came to the intertribal relationship. The understanding that you and I, we both have the right to exist. But when you start encroaching into our territory, we're going to have dispute. We're going to, and there, and the thing is, you know, we're going to try to work through that in other means besides war. But one thing, you know, I want to speak to is the fact that indigenous warfare was far different than European warfare, and that. Indigenous warfare fell on the lines primarily of ceremonial and that you went about it in a way that you wanted to lessen the casualties. You weren't there to destroy or to conquer 
and annihilate. But as and and, and that 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 is the standard. Now again, in our old traditions, as Aniwa as Cherokee people, we do have a story about dealing with a tribe that had different practices and ultimately we engaged in warfare with them that was not good and we almost wiped them out. We did bring in uh, many, you know, as the story goes, we did bring in many captives and they are a part of us in that, in that respect. But we were so remorseful over that in almost wiping them out that we basically placed a taboo on living in Kentucky. Wow. That the state of Kentucky was taboo for any, tri or for any Cherokee person to live in prior to the you know, European contact invasion. And um, it was seen as you, know, you could go a hunt, but you could not live there permanently. Otherwise, the ghosts of the Moon-Eyed people will haunt you. That's something to think about, you know, as far as, you know, the genocide that has happened here. That we were willing to place a, a boundary over the state of Kentucky from what we did. Thank um, you. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. Um, I, we could be here forever. I love the way uh, that creation story uh, can challenge us to think differently and be more honoring of both men and women and other and all creation. Um, I want us to give a, a round of applause and thank you. Um.